I want to encourage you, church, to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. And we are pressing forward this morning as we look at verses 18 through 23. Now you might say, wait a second, we spent an entire Sunday on just verse 18 last week. Yes, but that was laying the foundation for everything that we're going to see today. As last week, we thoroughly covered the wrath of God, how it has been revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by our unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so we're going to see what is, what, how does that bear itself out? What is the fruit of God's wrath having been revealed? We went to the cross and we saw that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath that we might freely drink the cup of his grace uh, in the new covenant. And so we took the Lord's Supper together last week. But we also saw that, as if you'll remember, I kind of alluded to this idea that uh, God's wrath has been revealed in, in three folds. So we see God's wrath revealed at the cross of Christ. If we need an ultimate example for what that looks like, we look to the cross. But we're going to see that God's wrath has also been revealed in the darkened times that we live in. And then we also saw last week, I referenced that we also see his wrath is still yet to be revealed at the end of days. And there I said, the cross is a foretaste of what awaits those who do not submit to it. That God's wrath is still over those who do not submit to the cross. So why do we suppress the truth in unrighteousness? What truth are we suppressing? How does this flesh itself out in our everyday lives? What does it look like for us to suppress the truth? What, what are those realities? Or, are the, um, or how is that being lived out in the lives of those around us? How do we see the suppression of truth not only within ourselves, but how do we see that in the lives of our friends, our family, our neighbors, or maybe our immediate family? And then, how do we respond according to that? That's what's at stake this morning in the verses that proceed, proceed from verse 18. I want to give warning, though, real quick before we move on to next week, uh, to, to any parents of young children. Next week's text um, bears this out in a, a very pointed and blunt way how the wrath of God has been revealed. This morning we're going to see how that's revealed in our idolatry, but next week it reveals that in a very uh, blunt way, uh, one of the ultimate forms of idolatry. So if you aren't ready to have some pointed and blunt conversations with your children about homosexuality, uh, or you think that maybe they're not mature enough to handle such conversations, then I'll I'll ask you to use your God-given discretion uh, as their primary discipler um, on whether or not they attend and, and will anticipate having uh, maybe some alternative maybe for children that won't be uh, a part of next Sunday's sermon. Nonetheless, I wanted to give that warning before we uh, get to next week. But this morning, I want to encourage you to stand once again in honor of the reading of God's word as we read our text for today, which again is Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, 
Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is the word of God. Let's pray, church. God, as we come before you this morning, we are eager to be shaped according to your word. So I pray that you would protect this time, focus our hearts and minds, attention on your word and the, your spirits working and speaking through your word, uh, that it may impact us uh, for life, that it may be for the edification of your church and the glorification of your name, and that it may move our feet in missional obedience to make the light of your gospel known. Yes, in the way we live, but also as we actively share it and speak it. May it be so for us as your church at Southside, Lord. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, church. So I want us to jump right in, having thoroughly addressed verse 18 last week. But again, I want us to, to see how does that there, how does everything that we discussed last week launch us then into seeing the reality of the suppression of truth and God's wrath revealed against unrighteousness in our daily lives and the world around us. We see God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and of righteousness of men. And so God has revealed his wrath. We talked about that last week. That's one of the graces that we often overlook is God's revealing his wrath. A revealing which we do not deserve, but he has made it known so that we can respond accordingly. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So in the unrighteousness of our natural state, of our flesh, in our fallenness, we suppress the truth of God. We address several things and how that fleshes itself out, the, the different truths, the different truths that we of God that we suppress, his goodness, his sovereignty, his character. But this week I want us to see how the text continues to expound on that. So we pick up in verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. So we're gonna pause right there. So by our unrighteousness, we suppress the truth. Our unrighteousness, fleshly nature, is what causes us to suppress the truth within. That's the idea here, is that there is a truth that is written everywhere, including written on our hearts, and we actively suppress it in our unrighteousness. And so where do we get this sense of truth? Where does this knowledge of truth come from? Do we obtain it from rigorous study? Is it a lofty knowledge that we must summon up? Can only the intellectually brilliant understand this truth? Well, verse 19 clearly says, no, that this is a knowledge and an understanding for everyone. For what can be known about God is plain to them. 
Now, there's that little word again at the beginning of verse 19. We see this kind of succession of fours. Verse 16, we start with four. Verse 17, four. Verse 18, four. Verse 19, four. So Paul gives the answer for us. That's what we see here. So, so the wrath of God has been revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And how do they suppress this truth? Why do we know that they suppress this truth? Why do we know that we ourselves suppress the truth? Because what can be known about God is plain. Verse 19 here is quite possibly one of, if not the most, damning verses in all of the Bible. That the knowledge of God is plain, church. It's not lofty. It's not verbose. It's not elitist. It's common. It's clear. It's concise. God has created mankind, that's us, just in case you didn't know that, with the ability to know him and to understand who he has revealed himself to be. He's created our brains with reason and deductive reasoning to simply be able to look at the created order around us and see the evidence of his existence. Which means we can't help but look anywhere in creation and at the created order and see that knowledge of God is plainly evident. We call this natural or general revelation. That is, that we can look to the created order and see plain evidence of God everywhere. So ponder this for a second. Ponder, this, that, ponder that God has given you the ability to ponder, first of all. But ponder this. He has given us the ability to look at a sunset or a bluebird sky, which we, I know we wish we could see right now, or observe a star-filled sky or see the peals of lightning or see rolls of, or hear rolls of thunder and to know that he is God. God has no need to justify his wrath to us. However, you can get no clearer of a justification of God's wrath than this. Knowledge of God has been made known plainly, which of course means our rejection of God is done willingly and without regard. Knowledge of God has been made known plainly, which means that our rejection of God is done willingly and without regard. Now, this is not a knowledge, though, we need to clarify, which leads to salvation. So that's not to say that it is plainly written across creation how one can come to know Jesus. This is not a knowledge which leads to salvation. And to say so would go totally against not only the rest of this letter to the Romans, but against all the New Testament. However, this is a knowledge which we are held accountable to. In the accounting, we have been found deficit, or deficient, rather, in terms of what we have done with this knowledge of God. Why? Well, this gets to the larger point of Paul's argument, and that's the pervasiveness of sin. Notice the completion. We see verse 17, again, going back 
talks about the righteousness of God and that the righteous shall live by faith. And because of God's righteousness, because of his righteous standard, because it, it is the gospel has been revealed, which is the power of God unto salvation, which we should not be ashamed of, God's wrath has been revealed against all ungodliness, all complete. And so we want to see the pervasiveness of sin here, that our sin is not merely a symptom of lax morals or lazy effort. Our sin is like a deep bone cancer. And any attempt at topical treatment by just trying to get our morals right, by just trying to try harder, do better, any attempt at a topical treatment is pointless if it's not treated to the core first. So what is the proper response to the knowledge of God? We see this. We see that knowledge about God is plain. God's wrath has been revealed because this knowledge is plain. And yet we aggressively and willingly reject God. So what's the proper response to knowledge of God? Let's just take a few examples from Scripture. Psalm 22 and 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Psalm 29, verse 2. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Psalm 86, verses 8 through 10. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Notice the emphasis there in that particular psalm alone of the created work of God, which displays his glory and the response to that being Worship. Last one, Psalm 95 and verse 6. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. The only proper response to the plain knowledge of God is worship. And so this is why we need to see that God's wrath has been revealed and that the reason for God's revealed wrath is that knowledge of God is plain. So if this is the only proper response, we must honestly ask ourselves, do we worship God truly, rightly, and fully? Do we naturally see the plainly God-given knowledge of God written across all creation and immediately respond with spontaneous praise and worship of his goodness, mercy, and grace? Does man naturally take all of the intellect and the reasoning and the philosophical thought and the introspective thought and apply it to a consistent life of worship toward the one true creator God? The answer is a clear and definitive no. We consistently apply all of that, all of our intellect, all of our reasoning, philosophical thought, introspective thought. We take all of that and we apply it toward who? the worship of ourselves, the worship of others, and toward things of such trivial nature. I was very encouraged last week when I got 
text from my friend Cody Davis of uh, our friend Kimber Davis having made a poster for uh, this series. I don't know if she kind of looks like she was being held hostage to do this. I I didn't ask her that detail, but uh, you can see it says, it's this word again, for. So I've been clearly emphasizing this word for many, many times uh, through this sermon series, and I'm thankful that it's sticking with our friend Kimber. Uh, So we see this word for explaining to us that God's wrath has been revealed for this exact purpose, that what can be known about God is plain to man. And as we just answered, the only proper response to knowledge of God is the worship of Him. So what we need to understand is that God's wrath is kindled because the worship of man is not. God's wrath is kindled because our worship is not. In our natural state, we do not worship God. We worship us. We worship others. We worship things. God has plainly made himself known, and our response is what? God who? Now, some respond to that, hearing that, say, that's not fair. Isn't it, though? If God has made knowledge of himself plainly known to all of us, and all of us have suppressed the truth, responded with worshiping, not with, without worshiping him, and shown our true God, ungodliness and unrighteousness, then what are all of us deserving of? The revealed wrath of God. So the fact that anyone is saved is an act of overwhelming grace, let alone that he has redeemed for himself his church. But how do they know? Who told them? I'm glad you asked. The last part of verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. God has plainly given witness to himself. You've heard me say and use this phrase many times in reference to God's word. We call it the self-revelatory word of God. God's self-revelatory word. That's what that means. He's the one who's given it. He's revealed himself in his word. The wrath of God has been revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men because what can be known about God has been made plain to them because God is the one who showed it to them. The fact that we can know right and wrong with no immediate need for a moral compass, we can look at an atrocity like the Holocaust and we can say, that is wrong. Based on what? We have, we have a moral compass that is written in us. The law of God is written on our hearts. The fact that we can enjoy the laughter of our children. And we can say, that's, that's good. What makes, what's good? What makes good? We know good and we know right and we know wrong and we know evil because God has revealed and written these things on us by his creative work. The fact that we can feel the spring breeze on our face and we can find enjoyment. All of these testify to the goodness of God. 
But in our sinfulness, we don't attribute any of that to God. And I want you to really think about that one. To, to think about when we experience things that we just definitively can easily say, that's good. Do we immediately apply that goodness as being given from God? Why is it that when man looks at a sunset or a mountain range or the Grand Canyon, we marvel at its beauty? I mean, even unbelieving man does this, right? That's why we have national parks because we said, hey, this is preservation worthy. We need to preserve this and protect it and keep anybody from disturbing Yosemite or the Grand Canyon or um, uh, Niagara Falls. Was, is, is that a national park? I don't know. I've never been there. Um, so nonetheless, we have all these settings of true and pure creative beauty. And even unbelieving man can acknowledge that is good and say we need to protect it. So that we can repeatedly show, generation after generation, like, look at this. Why is it that when man looks at these things, we marvel? But I want you to consider, I have an analogy for a second. I hope I don't lose you on this. But, but I want you to consider when the bull elk who lives on the mountain and sees countless beautiful sunsets and lives among the majestic scenery of the mountain. He looks at that, and what does he say? Nothing. Why? Because he doesn't, he doesn't have intellect. He doesn't have ability to ponder. He ponders nothing. What's going through his mind? Why did those stupid humans release wolves back into the wild? Like, what, what, was, what, was, the give, what was the deal with that? His, his brain is simply, where can I get food, and how can I survive? That's, that's the thinking of the animal. Fulfill the, the desires that are natural to him. So when we don't give God credit for those things, what are we doing? We're subverting the created order and we're acting just like an animal. When we try to take those things in and just enjoy them to ourselves, or we, you can apply that across any litany of things that we take and we give credit or just enjoy the credit for ourselves. The reason for the difference there is that God has given us reason, intellectual ability, and knowledge. He's given us introspective thought. For what purpose? That we may dwell on his glory continually. So when we don't do that, again, we're acting like what? We're acting like the elk. We're acting like an animal. When you see your neighbor pour untold sums of money into lifestyle purchases, Boats, vehicles, adorning himself or herself with all things that they think will bring them happiness and make them better than everyone. When they're constantly just adorning themselves with this or that, I want you to think they're an elk. When you're tempted to fall down the same rabbit hole or the same game trail, I guess if you could say. I want to say to yourself, I'm thinking like an elk. When you're tempted to give glory to yourself or anything other than God, I'm an elk. Now, is there anything wrong with purchasing said things? 
in and of itself. Now, the purchase of said thing in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with that. That's not the point that I'm getting to. It's if you're doing so for the purpose of simply seeking to gratify your desires and putting all your hopes in what can I get next and how can I continue to build up my name and how can I continue to build up my status, that is when you're thinking like an animal. He's shown himself, church. God has shown himself. Not only that, but he's given us the ability to interpret and to know the means by which he has shown himself. He's shown himself in a, in a way and such that we can interpret and know him. Now ponder that for a minute. Who we, who are completely unrighteous, who have spurned the God of the universe, who have kindled his wrath against our unrighteousness, to us, he has given the ability to know him. Consider the grace that is oozing from verses 18 through 19. That God's wrath has been revealed, and yet he has still plainly made knowledge of himself evident. So that we would know him and worship him rightly. So that his wrath would not have to be set against us. But what do we do in the darkness of our hearts? God who? God's self-revelation is an overlooked grace which we do not deserve. And this is what I meant last week about being overwhelmed at God's grace as revealed in his wrath. He's revealed his wrath and extended mercy that we may know his grace as revealed in his son, Jesus Christ. So we know God has given us his self-revelatory word, but how else has he given us revelation of himself? He's, how has he shown this plain witness? Where do we gain the knowledge for which all mankind is to be held accountable for? Verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Clearly perceived in the things which have been made. Notice once again how convicting those words are. The perception is clear. And it's clear where? Across all creation. In creation, the things that have been made. This word here for creation is from the Greek word poema. It's where we get our English word poem. So it communicates the intentionality and the purpose and the communicative nature of creation. That creation communicates and points to the one true creator God. It shouts of his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature. All of it clearly perceived by simply looking to the thunder. You can't look at thunder. Looking to the lightning. Looking to the fish or the elk. Looking to the created order, the things which have been made. We can clearly perceive of God. Creation shouts of the knowledge of God. Back in October, you know, my family and I, we went to 
Disney, and we were standing in line, what you do a lot there, and I'm sure we were waiting to take a picture with a princess or something, and we were standing in line, and this teenager, there's a teenage girl in front of us, just like one or two people, um, I'm not really paying attention to what's going on, kind of trying to think about what's next or where we're going and whatnot. And I hear her say, you've just been jesus And I'm kind of like, what does that even mean? Like, I look up, I'm like trying to think, it's, like, do I have pastor written on me somewhere? Like, what is she talking about? I want to know. I'm looking around, I'm trying to see, and I don't see anything. And then finally I look up, and literally written in the sky is Jesus. So a plane, one of those smoke planes had, had written. So that, that's what I could clearly see is Jesus. And it took me a while to find the plane. I didn't see the plane at first. So I was like, well, how did that get there? <laughs> now, now I see what she meant. You've just been Jesus, right? And so I could have come to a few conclusions. Like either I could have thought that the wind blew in such a magical way that it twisted literal clouds into perfectly spaced letters that said Jesus, or someone did that intentionally. But I want to read for you uh, an example, another example from John Piper's 1998 sermon, uh, the was titled, Displays of God Remove the Excuse for Failed Worship. When I heard this example, I could not help but share it. And so I want to make sure that I gave credit there. In 1996, Michael Behe, a biochemist who looks at the wonders of the microcosm of creation rather than the macrocosm, wrote a book called Darwin's Black Box and argued that the single tiny cell is irreducibly complex. Irreducibly complex. And therefore, the product of intelligent design and not chance. So what does irreducibly complex mean? Irreducible complexity means that the immensely complex cell has a large number of parts that all work together in such a way that the absence of one part stops the entire function. Which means that the functioning system of the cell could not be built up by small evolutionary steps in which the parts accumulated gradually. He goes on to say, most recently of all, William Dembski has written The Design Inference. As a scientist who wrote this book, The Design Inference. He points out that many well-known scientists must constantly suppress the suspicion that there is design in the universe. For example, he quotes Richard Dawkins, an arch-Darwinian, who says, Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. <laughs> so did you, did you hear that? It's the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. And then he goes on to quote, this one was the one that just, I was running whenever I was listening to this. And it just, I'm like, I'm talking about like a set new pace records and stuff, right? So he quotes Francis Crick, the co-discoverer of DNA, who says, Biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but rather evolved. 
I mean, you want to talk about the clear evidence of suppression of truth. You have to keep it as a constant reminder in your mind. As a scientist, like, I know this looks designed, but like, no. No way. In other words, just trust the science, right? No, in other words, they suppress the truth. This is what's happening in the mind of fleshly man everywhere. They see the evidence of God's poetic design and creativity and goodness, and they say, no. I got to keep that in mind, suppress that, just keep that elsewhere. I got to remind myself that that is not the case. Creation shouts of the knowledge of God. It does not whisper it subtly, but it shouts of God's creative work and goodness. We read this in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words whose voice is not heard. The announcement of God's creative design has gone out everywhere in all creation. Their voice goes out through all the earth, verse 4 of Psalm 19, and their words to the end of the world. Psalm 50, 1 through 6, the mighty one, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him, a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is a judge. Selah. So where does the clearly perceived knowledge and purposeful lack of worship leave us on the scales of cosmic justice? Because as verse 6 says there in Psalm 50, the heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. So where does our clearly perceived knowledge and purposeful lack of worship leave us on the scales of cosmic justice. Pick back up again at the end of verse 20. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They became futile in their thinking. All people know God and refuse to worship him. All people, whether they admit it or not, whether they are Richard Dawkins or Francis Crick or whoever they may be, they know God and refuse to worship Him. And then the, the ultimate question that's always asked is, well, what about the innocent tribesmen out in the bush who's never heard of the name of Jesus? This is a fallacy which plagues many people. And I know because I've wrestled with it myself before. And here's why. In light of the truths we saw last week, 
and have seen already this week, who is there on earth that can stand before a thrice holy and completely righteous God and state their own innocence? No one. So there is no innocent person out there anywhere. We read of the nature of man throughout God's word. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Exodus 32. God has rescued his people from slavery, given them the law, brought them to Mount Sinai, preparing them for the land, right? So surely now, because they have the law, they're holy, right? What do they hear down the mountain? Worship of an idol. What does the Lord say to Moses in Exodus 32, 9? And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold... It is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Of course, then Moses intercedes on behalf of the people, showing our need for a covenant mediator, which is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. We go on, Deuteronomy 31 Okay, so they were punished for that. They had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. That generation passed. So surely now that a generation has been raised up, wandering in the wilderness, knowing the law, worshiping at the tabernacle, maybe that generation is going to take the promised land and be holy, right? Deuteronomy 31, 16. And the Lord said to Moses, verse 6 rather, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. So, what happens? That happens, Right? They go into the promised land. They don't obey the word of the Lord. They, they overthrow at first, and then they don't completely obey and drive out all the pagan nations, destroy all the idols. So then we enter the judges period where the overarching idea and the remind, repetitive phrase, there was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. See, the, the emphasis there, because this is before they had desired a monarchy. So who was their king? Or supposed to be their king? God. And so that's the idea. There, there was no king because they did not acknowledge God and God removed his presence from them and everyone just did what was right in their own eyes. You go to 1 Samuel and they say, give us a king. That in and of itself is not wrong. What's wrong is their moniker after that. Give us a king that we may be like all other nations. We go on to second kings at the time of the Babylonian exile and we see the people's continued unrepentance, desiring to go after false gods. We go to Jeremiah 17, 9 where we see the heart is deceitfully wicked. 
Our hearts only and always lead us into deeper depravity, pointing to our desperate need for new hearts. And that is what Paul is building toward here. Although they knew God in their hearts, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. The darkness of the human heart cannot be understated. Verse 22. Claiming to be wise. So now you see the active role that we play in our own darkness. Claiming to be wise. They became fools. Notice how we actively claim our own wisdom. The hearts of all mankind are foolishly darkened by sin. See, Paul knew of this because if you turn to Acts chapter 14, he experienced this for himself in preaching Christ. We see here in Acts 14, starting in verse 8, a story which so pointedly describes the darkness and depravity of the human heart that we are seeing explained by Paul here. So Acts 14, verse 8. So Paul and Barnabas, on missionary journey, going to Lystra. And there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw that Paul, what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So there it is. They explained to them the gospel that the one true creator God who is the one who gives them rains in their season and provides food for their stomachs and is the one who satisfies their hearts with the things that the, the common graces that they experience. He's the one that they should be praising. And so everybody immediately heard the gospel and responded, Right? No, verse 18, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Paul plainly made known to them the gospel of Christ, showing that they could worship a one true and living God who provides all good things, who's the one who acted through him to heal this man at Lystra. And what was the response of the people? 
No, we want to just keep worshiping you. Our hearts were born dark, and before Christ came into our lives, our testimony was one of buying as many blackout curtains as we could, sealing up every door and unscrewing every light bulb until there was no light at all. We were, not only were our hearts darkened, we actively sought to make them darker until Christ. Understanding all of this makes the glory and the grace of the light of Christ shine all the brighter. Not just at the moment of our salvation, but that's what keeps us now in this moment. Seeing the darkened, confused, and lost state of the world and rejoicing in the light that we stand in while also being moved in mission to shine that light. So I'll turn your attention back to verse 23 of our text in Romans. So claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So that's exactly what we saw with those people in Lystra. This is what we see in our world actively as we look around us and we just think like, how could people do the things that they do? Why do people act the way they act? Why are things this way? This. We have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. We have engaged in ultimate idolatry. So right now, I don't know if the rain's falling now, but it's fallen, and trees are soaking it up and ready for the sun to shine through the clouds so that the leaves can open and, the, and photosynthesis can take place. If you grew up on SpongeBob, you know, photosynthesis, right? But all this happens constantly without us even having to think about it, without us even being aware of it. God has designed and ordered and created the universe to shout of his creative goodness. You see, church, the main truth we suppress is the glory of God in all things. And so I've been pretty heavy to this point because the text is pretty heavy, but it points us to the greater glory, the greater knowledge of the gospel. It makes the gospel all the sweeter to know just how darkened we were in our understanding. Now for some, maybe thinking of how there are still those who dwell in this darkness, maybe that brings you down and leaves you in despair. I pray that the ending here will help rightly frame all of this that we've seen and lift us up in obedience. So praise God that in Christ, he has shown through the darkness of our hearts, made his glory known that we might be to the praise of his glory. He has given knowledge of himself and then he's given revelation of himself and his word that we may have a knowledge which leads unto salvation, that we might rightly worship him now, that we might look to the photosynthesis of a tree or that we might look to a sunset or that we might look to the Grand Canyon and say, glory be to God our maker. 
and that we might find our true joy in glorifying his name. What does this highlight for us? It was nothing but grace which saved us from our darkened, idolatry-riddled state. So what if this leaves you downtrodden thinking about those whom maybe you love or know that are still living in this darkened state? It is nothing but grace which will save those who remain there. It was nothing but grace which saved us and brought us unto a knowledge which leads to salvation so that we might rightly look at the revealed nature of God in creation and say, praise be to God. And it is nothing but grace which will save those that remain there. So may this do two things. And we'll, I'll leave us with this. May it humble us in repentant worship and may it move us in mission-minded obedience. As we are constantly aware of the natural revelation of God, let us constantly also be aware of those who are darkened to it. And let us preach the gospel that, they may, that the light may pierce through the darkness and that the Lord may draw them unto salvation. May it be so, church. Let's pray. God, we love you. We praise you. We praise you, God, for your invisible attributes, your eternal power, your divine nature, which are clearly perceived in all creation, that you have opened our eyes from our darkened state, drawn us unto salvation by your grace, and helped us to see all of these things that we may now rightly worship you. So I pray, God, for those of us here who are part of your church, who know you and who claim you and who walk as ambassadors of yours, God, pray that you would keep us in a humble state of acknowledging your goodness and glory in all things. God, for those who are still darkened, as your ambassadors help us to shine the light of your gospel, as we walk in obedience to your mission, that more may come to know you, that you would pierce through the darkness, revealing the goodness of your grace. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.